I am, I am back. I was away for the past couple weeks and uh, surely miss being up here introducing these uh, talks. I'm glad you guys can make it. Um, today I want to introduce uh, Dr. Dave Hager. He's an associate professor of medicine at Hopkins across town and uh, uh, focuses... Oh, I promoted you? Well, I, I, don't, I don't know if they told you, but uh, they wanted me to announce that. <laughs> Soon to be associate professor of medicine um, of pulmonary and critical care at, at uh, Johns Hopkins. Um, for some background, Dr. Hager uh, uh, completed his MD at Cornell, um, did his residency and fellowship at, at Hopkins, and has been on faculty there um, for the past multiple years. He currently serves as the associate medical ICU director and is one of the principal investigators of the Victus trial. And you know, my, introductory, my introductory email, and um, as many of you are already familiar, um, the Victus trial is assessing vitamin C, thiamine, and steroids in the setting of septic shock. And there's been a lot of hype around this, and uh, nobody better to discuss it than uh, Dr. Hager himself. So thank you. The expectations are high now. That's on. Ooh, that's very much on. Okay. Um, well, thanks for having me. I uh, is this too loud? No, it's okay. Um, I, I being part of this study has really been uh, a great experience. And if you have, you know, if you're interested in clinical research, clinical trials, and you're around something like this, it's taking taking off. Try and just dive into the middle of it because I think it will um, unmask. Uh, a lot of uh, unnecessary concerns you may have. It, may, it makes it seem much more feasible than you would if you were just sort of sitting there thinking about how to do a trial on your own. Uh, it is very involved, but um, very doable. So, I, so the message is don't be intimidated. Um, so this is just a sketch of what I'm gonna try and cover um, with uh, the risks I've sort of skipped until the end and left to the end. There's not, not a lot to talk about there, fortunately. Um, which is one of the reasons this has gotten uh, some traction, I think. Um, so just basic epidemiology, I, I think it's, uh, I've been told it's mostly fellows, but there's a variety of people in the room, so um, uh, forgive me if this is uh, well known to you all, I'm sure it is for many. So sepsis is a big problem in the United States. So uh, th this slide says one to three million cases in the United States each year. Um, those estimates have ranged from 750,000 to 3 million, and it, it depends a little bit on what assumptions you make to, to make your projection. But I think everybody would agree that it's, it's a common problem. Um, it uh, accounts for about 10% of all ICU admissions and has a high mortality rate. Uh, you guys have seen the studies. So we're getting a lot of randomized studies in sepsis, septic shock over the last few years, and they all have mortalities sort of between 20 and 30, 35, 40 percent. So it's it's not insignificant, and it and it's responsible for up to 50 percent of all in-hospital deaths. Um, I'm working on the protocol paper for the Victus study, so I was trying to update some of the statistics and. Um, uh, I think what we wrote into the protocol was that it, it, it costs the United States about $20 billion, and the most recent estimate, which is from 2013, so not current, is that it's up to $24 billion a year to, to manage sepsis in the United States. And we really don't have much in terms of um, effective treatments. What, what we do know is that if we recognize sepsis early and we start treatment, um, 
we do better. Um, we know that if we give antibiotics, we do better than if we don't. That's probably the most important thing. Um, and then in the setting of uh, performance improvement projects where we bundle different therapeutic options together, we know that in that setting, we sort of focus people on the problem of sepsis. We give them some discrete tasks to execute when they recognize a case. That can improve outcomes too. But there's really no uh, pharmacological interventions other than antibiotics that have consistently been shown to improve outcomes, and that's despite over 100 uh, randomized controlled trials looking at different um, agents. So that's, that's sort of sobering. It's also, I think, why there's, in part, why there's been so much enthusiasm about this study um, by Paul Merrick. So Paul Merrick, I, I have never met. Um, but before I knew of this study, Roy Brower, who was my mentor through residency and fellowship and is sort of, if any of you have worked with him or met him, you know, he's a pretty deliberate and critical thinker. Um, he passed out this article by Paul Merrick about uh, a rational approach to fluid resuscitation a, a couple of years ago. So I remember the name. It was a nicely written article. Um, and so when this popped up, it, it made me think twice uh, about just sort of dismissing it. Um, but what they did was, uh, and if you haven't read the paper, it's, it's a fun read, and it's, it, you, you know, you should be a little uh, skeptical as you read it, but the way it reads, I've never read a paper like this before that sort of had this high profile. He had three patients he was convinced were going to die from sepsis, and so as sort of a Hail Mary, he gave them this cocktail of vitamin C and thiamine and hydrocortisone, and to his great surprise, when he came back the next day, you could see him videos of him talking about this online, because this has really gotten a lot of traction. His great surprise, they, they all lived. And based on that anecdotal experience, he changed <coughs> practice in his ICU so that anybody who's admitted to the ICU with sepsis gets put on this three-drug cocktail. Um, to say what I didn't catch the first time I looked at this was uh, I saw the abstract and so the mortality went from 40% to about 8.8%. Uh, and uh, but then when you look in the paper, you see that based on an Apache 4 prediction of in-hospital mortality, both groups were relatively well matched. So it is a pretty remarkable mortality benefit. Um, it's a before and after study. You know, there's lots of ways to punch holes in this. I think the biggest one is that it's too good to be true, given our previous experience with, with sepsis and randomized controlled trials. But I think because it's vitamin C, and everybody's heard of that, and nobody's afraid of it. It's thiamine, which we give all the time, and hydrocortisone, which we've studied a lot, but we don't, we're not afraid of it. Um, maybe it helps some patients. Um, I think it's gotten a lot of traction. You've probably heard stories about this in, in, on NPR and popping up in the lay press as well. Um, put this slide in just to remind us of things that we have studied in sepsis that have not changed outcomes. These are a lot of management things. These aren't focused on pharmaceuticals necessary, but they're, they're a bunch of good ideas that made sense, but when studied rigorously did not pan out. And this is another list of things that we thought we were doing to help the patients, but they didn't actually work out. You know, flecainide monoclonal antibodies, milrinone for CHF, neseratide, the different PEEP settings, PA catheters, um, surfactant, long list of things here. I, I still have a place in my heart for HFO. That was my research topic in, as a fellow. I think I know how to use it. 
Um, but the point being that uh, just in the, the, the data I'm going to show you in the rest of the talk is, is pretty exciting when you look at it. But most of it's animal data, um, small studies um, uh, when it's the clinical level. And none of them are large RCTs, which is what we're getting ready to study. So think back on this slide as if you're like me, you're getting in, you will be getting enthusiastic about looking at the data. I said the only pharmaceutical we have that has been shown to improve outcomes is antibiotics. And, and I just put this up here as sort of a way to say it's happened before. We don't expect it's going to happen with this cocktail that outcomes will improve so much as it did before. But um, this, is the, uh, this is survival here, and this is uh, days of illness. These are patients with pneumococcal bacteremia. So if you don't treat that, as you guys know, Pretty much everybody dies. Um, they used to treat this with um, serum, and they had uh, some improvements in terms of survival. And then when they added on antibiotics, a, a nice improvement in survival. So again, uh, maybe vitamin C will be reproducible. Um, we'll see the sort of the Merrick protocol take root as a part of standard of care. Um, but so far, antibiotics is really the only thing in this syndrome that has made such a difference before. So I'm going to jump quickly to the Victus trial at the beginning, and then we'll go through some of the biological rationale behind this cocktail, and then we'll come back to um, Victus at the end, since, since I think a lot of you work, guys work in the ICUs, and hopefully you'll be sending patients to Mike. Mike, are you the, you're the PI? Yeah. Um, so the, the way it's, uh, the, our, our study is a randomized controlled trial. Um, we are funded for 500 patients. And we're hoping that, if necessary, we can go out to 200 or 2,000. Um, and there's, uh, we can talk about that if people are interested. I don't want to get bogged down in it now. But the, it, it's suboptimal to be in this situation. We recognize that. Um, the, the resources that are supporting the study um, were keen to have us demonstrate that we could actually get our act together in a relatively short amount of time and enroll 500 patients. And if we're on track for that, um, then they would reconsider uh, funding the rest of the study. But from a methodological point of view, it's, it's, it's a bit uncomfortable to, you know, to, to not know what's going to happen after 500. We've written some rules that we think will get us through that if it happens. But um, patients will have to have confirmed or suspected of inf infection. So, um, and then they have to have either respiratory organ dysfunction or cardiovascular organ dysfunction. And uh, I'll define those uh, in a second. Um, and then the intervention is going to be what, it's basically what Merrick, Merrick actually gave, I think, uh, Thiamine 200 BID. But we're going to, just in, to make it easier for the nurses at the bedside and organizing the study, we said we're going to do every drug every six hours, vitamin C 1.5 grams, thiamine 100 milligrams, hydrocortisone 50 Q6. And that'll go for four days or uh, ICU discharge, whichever occurs first. And then another thing to be aware of is um, we don't have a true placebo group. We have a comparator group. And the, the reason for that is we couldn't get consensus on whether we some people would accept double dosing patients who the clinical team had put on steroids. If they were randomized to the intervention group, they'd get the clinically prescribed ones and then another uh, 200 milligrams a day on top of that. Um, and we also thought there would be 
um, investigators who wouldn't want to randomize to an arm where they could not give steroids. So the, the issue that this brings, brings up is that um, having this, uh, the opportunity for steroids in the, what we're calling the comparator group or comparator uh, placebo group means that we'll bias the results towards the null. So we may make the uh, placebo group look a little bit better, especially since our outcome is ventilator and vasopressor-free days and steroids often get you off vasopressors earlier. However, if you look at the Merrick study, 60% of the patients in his retrospective control got steroids. So we think we may be okay on that. We'll see. Um, our primary outcome, as I mentioned, is uh, ventilator and vasopressor-free days. Um, the key secondary outcome is mortality at 30 days, and then there's a list of secondary outcomes here that we're going to look at, uh, ICU delirium, uh, length of stay, renal replacement therapy. And then we've got a, a long-term outcome, which is looking at uh, neurocognitive um, endpoints. So uh, just to go through these, since you guys will be on the units where we hope we'll be getting patients from. So the first thing is patients have to be, they can be in the ED, but the plan has to be that they're going to the ICU. Uh, we can enroll patients who come from the floor to the ICU so they can come from two sources, but they, they have to, the plan has to be that they're gonna be in the ICU. Um, and then confirmed or suspected in, infection, and that's gonna be defined by somebody's ordered blood cultures and somebody's given antibiotics. So if those two things are true, everything's good so far. And either respiratory dysfunction or cardiovascular uh, dysfunction. And respiratory dysfunction is defined here, acute hypoxemia with a low PF or SF ratio that requires one of these three things, some sort of mechanical respiratory support. So intubation, mechanical ventilation, non-invasive ventilation, or high flow with a high flow and a FI2 of at least 40%. Or, and or, you can uh, be on vasopressors and that can get you in. Not intubated, not on respiratory cert, but just on vasopressors. So at least one vasopressor for at least an hour um, and that has to be despite at least a liter of crystalloid resuscitation. Um, so there's, uh, uh, this list may evolve, probably not too much in the next year. I don't think there's too many more drugs that are on the market, but uh, what you don't see here are, are um, inotropes. So we're just looking at vasopressors. Um, quickly going through the exclusion criteria. So you have to be at least 18. Um, the quali qualifying organ dysfunction has to be present for um, less than 24 hours. So if it's greater than 24 hours, then, then they're out. And that's at the time of randomization. So um, if they qualified on uh, 8 a.m. one morning and uh, 10 p.m. that night, you get to them and they're on, now off vasopressors, we can't enroll that patient. Um, we don't want people who've been in the hospital for greater than 30 days. We think that's a different population. Um, people who have limitations on care. You can be DNR, but you can't be DNI. Okay, so you have to be able to get vasopressors and, and respiratory support to get in the study, um, uh, but you can be DNI. And then chronic hypoxemia. So if you're on supplemental oxygen, either by nasal cannula or, or me, uh, mechanical ventilator or by non-invasive, um, you're out. Um, same is true with people with chronic cardiovascular failure. Um, if, if there's a known allergy uh, to vitamin C, thiamine, um, uh, you wouldn't be enrolled. Uh, things to be aware of, uh, history of hyperoxaluria uh, or oxalate nephropathy, 
uh, suspected ethylene glycol injection or known G6PD deficiency. The, the, there's a rare um, adverse effect of hemolysis uh, in the setting of high concentrations of vitamin C um, in people of G6PD deficiency. If somebody has already started intravenous vitamin C or any vitamin C dose greater than gram daily, um, they would not be included. If the expectation is that they're going to die within 30 days from something other than sepsis, we would not want that patient. Um, pregnancies out, prisoners are out. Um, current participation in another interventional research study. So uh, there is a pathway for this. If you think you have a, another study at University of Maryland um, that you could co-enroll with, um, you'd propose that to the uh, study executive committee and we would look through the, how that interventional study might affect the outcomes that we're interested in and, and sort of uh, give, um, uh, give permission, but that would require uh, uh, that being done in advance. Um, and then, of course, if you can't get consent, um, we wouldn't take those patients. All right, so physiological rationale for why this is uh, uh, maybe working. Um, humans and guinea pigs do not make vitamin C. We're the only mammals that don't. Um, and it turns out we, we do pretty badly if we, if we don't have it in our system. Um, this is just a figure looking at uh, the, the generation of ascorbic acid from glucose, and this is the enzyme that we're deficient in. Again, humans and guinea pigs. Usually it's synthesized in the liver of other, other uh, uh, animals. Funny thing, uh, my life I've uh, thought that, you know, if there's any way to get high vitamin C into my body, it's to eat a bunch of oranges, right? Oranges are actually not that high in vitamin C compared to other things. Peppers are much higher. Broccoli is much higher. Um, oranges certainly have it, but it's not, it's not so high. Um, this is an early study, just to point out that somebody was aware of this phenomenon long ago, and uh, it didn't really get too much traction. But these, this is a study where they had guinea pigs that um, they had a, a group that had a normal diet with lots of peppers and a, a group that was deficient in vitamin C. And then they got LPS injections. And so the, the animals that were basically had scurvy, um, 19 of 26 died in the first hour, and then another three died by 18 hours, whereas only four of the 20 that were in the control group ever died. I imagine some of them have died since 1971, but you get what I'm talking about. Um, this is a study that's relatively recent, 2017, and the point of this is uh, to say that people with critical illness have low concentrations of vitamin C. I don't think this has been on the radar. So this is 44 patients, um, 24 with septic shock, and they measured uh, serum vitamin C and C-reactive proteins on days one through four. So this is, uh, in this figure, in this panel, this is vitamin C concentration millimoles per liter these are critically ill non-septic, which were mostly cardiac patients, is my recollection, and then the group was septic shock. Um, and so I put on here just some reference points. So uh, this is sort of the lower end of normal for somebody who's not sick, uh, vitamin C concentration, 34 to 114. That's actually micromolar is what that should be. Um, 
And then uh, this is uh, where you become hypovitaminosis, so deficient, and this is scurvy down here. So um, you can see that there's a lot of patients that get admitted uh, who have low concentrations of vitamin C. Um, in this panel there is uh, C-reactive protein is, is plotted, and this is based on vitamin C concentration. So uh, folks who have um, low vitamin C levels have higher markers of inflammation, C-reactive protein. Those that have higher vitamin C concentration have lower uh, measures of C-reactive protein. So uh, it speaks to vitamin C being an anti-inflammatory. This I thought was really interesting because um, this points out that even somebody who starts off with good vitamin C levels, you read this stuff, you start taking vitamin C, I think. Um, and, uh, but if you do that and you have normal vitamin C levels and even high, relatively high, when you show up to the hospital, this one patient, over the course of just hours, their levels plummet. Stuff gets chewed up really, really quickly. So this is one patient, and this is uh, the average of those 44 patients. And as the vitamin C concentration went down in that patient, the C-reactive protein went up. So. Um, this would speak to maybe we should be supplementing this in people even if they are not deficient on arrival. This is um, from a paper by, I think I didn't uh, put the name in, but it's from the group down at NIH, Mark Levine, who's a co-investigator in the study. His life's work is, uh, is measuring vitamin C. Um, and this is um, on, the, on the panel on the left here, it's time against uh, concentration. Um, this is the spike in concentration when you give it intravenously. So there's a series of patients who are given intravenous vitamin C and they're given 1.25 grams as a bolus. You can see that within the first hour there's a nice big spike and then it comes back down relatively quickly into levels down below 200. Um, this is if you give it orally and this is a, a range of doses. So, um, maybe demonstrated here a little better. This is again uh, vitamin C concentration, and this on the, the the code here is just looking at different increasing doses taken orally of vitamin C. And what you see is that it pretty much tops out at 200, and then over the course of uh, hours, it it comes back down relatively quickly. And even if you give a high dose. So this is, uh, I think, three to six grams. I'm trying to look at two different screens here. Uh, three grams, six times a day, and you give that uh, frequently, you really can't get it up above 200 much more. And so that's why we think uh, there may be other reasons that you wouldn't give this to uh, a patient orally uh, who, who had septic shock. But even if you did that, you wouldn't be able to get the serum levels up too high into what we think are the therapeutic ranges. This is uh, micromoles, this is millimoles, so the scale is different here. And you can see giving, um, I think on this one they give, uh, this top curve is 100 grams at one time. So you can really, uh, you can really give a lot. Um, and if you're worried about adverse events, that, that, that guy didn't have a problem. All right, some target effects. So I didn't know this, but um, the adrenal gland has probably got some of the highest concentrations of vitamin C in, in, in the body. 
And uh, when ACTH stimulates the adrenal gland, you can measure increased vitamin C in the circulation and in the adrenal bands and in the arterial uh, supply. Uh, we're missing a panel there. Sorry about that. Um, vitamin C is also an important cofactor in the synthesis of uh, dopamine, norepinephrine, vasopressin, and corticosteroids. So these things are not just vasopressors, as we often think about them, um, but they're important for neurotransmission. So there's, there's effects in the brain if we have inadequate uh, um, norepinephrine uh, and other neurotransmitters. Um, and then it affects the function of the adrenal, both the cortex and the medulla. So um, folks who are deficient in vitamin C, they won't make as much corticosteroid. Uh, in addition to not making as much uh, 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 native vasopressor. You can, this is just a synthetic pathway here of uh, ultimately of, of epinephrine, but you can see ascorbic acid is in there twice as a cofactor. And I don't, I think, yeah, I wrote it up here, vasopressin as well. It's, it's not in this particular pathway. So it helps the body make vasopressors um, uh, in addition to corticosteroids. It increases the sensitivity to vasopressors as well. So not just making vasopressors, but increases the sensitivity. So these are um, smooth muscle from a rat aorta, and this is peak force generated. Um, this is an animal on, a, on this particular dose uh, of norepinephrine, and that's their tension. As you increase ascorbic acid concentration, the tension goes up and up and up and up and up. So increased production of, of uh, endogenous uh, um, uh, adrenergic uh, elements and then increases the function. So sort of acting as a cofactor. And the thought that this, this is working at the receptor level to make the, the norepinephrine more impactful. Um, so I think most of us have thought of vitamin C or known that it's an it's a antioxidant. Um, or also known as an electron donor. Um, it has the ability uh, to help repair protein and lipid radicals um, and facilitates the recycling of other cellular antioxidants. So vitamin E, uh, tetrahydrobiopterin, BH4, uh, which decreases the prevalence of superoxide uh, and avoids peroxynitrate. Both of those are reactive oxygen species which have a lot of downstream adverse effects, damaged RNA, DNA, amino acids, lipid peroxidation, ultimately cell death. Um, and you can, you can look at the pathway here, um, but the, the end point is that by having vitamin C around, we, we decrease some of these downstream effects of superoxide and nitric oxide. Um, this is a nice study, Not, this is uh, 2011. Um, and, and they look at a bunch of things. I, I've just tried to pull a sample of, of what they looked at here. So it's a mouse model. Uh, mouses were given intraperitoneal uh, LPS. And there's a control group, but uh, then there's a group that got LPS, a group that got LPS and vitamin C, and then LPS and DHA, which is dihydroascorbate. Um, and you can see that in the survival curve over the course of a couple days, the animals that got the uh, vitamin C or the DHA in addition, LPS did, did much better. Uh, mortality of sort of 50 to 60, survival is 50 to 60% versus all animals dying. 
So there appears to be a protective effect in this mouse model. When they look at the histology, um, they see that um, compared to the control, uh, the LPS group, as you'd expect, has lots of inflammation, lots of white cells, not so much in terms of hyalomembranes there, but a lot more inflammation. The animals that got ascorbic acid and DHA, they look much more like normal. So maybe a protective effect on the lung. And Barry Fowler, who's done a lot of this work um, over the years down at Virginia Commonwealth, um, he just had, the, you guys probably know, the citrus study, um, which was completed. So I think that was four sites looking at a high dose of intravenous vitamin C, um, 200 milligrams per kilogram per day in divided doses. Um, and I guess, I, I wasn't at ATS this year because we had a new baby, and I thought my wife would not like that. Um, apparently he, he gave a presentation and all, all that was reported was that there was something was different between the control group and the intervention group, but he didn't say what. So I, I'm very curious to see what that uh, ends up showing. And he's got the data, so we should be hearing that soon. <clears throat> um, if you look at uh, myeloperoxidase, mRNA, so that's a, a, a sign of neutrophils getting to where they need to uh, to fight off infection. Um, in the control group that doesn't get LPS, it's low. In the LPS group, um, it's quite high. And then I, I guess neutrophils getting where they're supposed to, but um, as, as you know, this can get out of control and cause a lot of uh, adverse effects as well. Um, that is suppressed to some extent by ascorbic acid and DHA. And then if you look at the um, protein that gets into the alveoli, again, uh, just LPS, the high-level protein in, in the alveoli in a lavage compared to um, control, and control in the, the animals that got ascorbate and uh, DHA were relatively similar. All right, NF-kappa beta, so an inflammatory mediator, uh, again, suppressed. These are just a little bit redundant, I appreciate that, but it's all the same experiment, and they looked at a lot of interesting endpoints. So um, uh, inflammatory mediator suppressed by ascorbic acid and DHA relative to um, LPS. And then this was interesting. They, they, when they did their histology, they looked at the vasculature of, of the lungs, and they were able to, to make a measure of the percent of microthrombi, percent of vasculature that were occluded with microthrombi, and, and you can see that, that it's quite high in the LPS group and that's suppressed by the ascorbic acid, and that may have to do with uh, platelet activation and um, uh, similar factors. Okay, um, looking at uh, improved sepsis outcomes, what did I mean by that? sort of animal level outcomes, so maybe a little strongly stated. But so again, it's a mouse model, sequel ligation puncture, a wild type group, uh, a group that is given, um, they, they called it intravenous in the paper, but it sounds like they're re really giving it sub-Q, vitamin C, 200 milligrams. Um, and then this GULO minus minus, so that's, that's a mouse that, like humans, would be deficient in the ability to make vitamin C on their own. That's that enzyme that we don't have and guinea pigs don't have. So Jackson Lab has made these GULO minus minus mice that are um, uh, unable to synthesize vitamin C on their own. 
Um, and then um, we've got a fraction of survivors here, and you can uh, find the different groups here, but the, the wild type group, sorry, my uh, slides here. All right, so wild type group, as it's a little easier for me, um, uh, pretty good survival. This is the group that did not get uh, LPS or, or sequel ligation. Uh, excuse me. This is sequel ligation puncture with vitamin C are the big squares. And then the triangles down here, even in the deficient mice, um, sorry, this upside down triangle, deficient mice, when they got sequel ligation pumpers, as long as they got vitamin C, their outcome was good as well. Whereas the wild type had a 50% mortality and the, the group that was presumably deficient on presentation also, or at the beginning of the experiment, also um, had a, a poor survival. So this is looking at, um, there's a, uh, one of the review articles that I forwarded over before the presentation is written by Paul Merrick, and he's putting together an argument of how vitamin C can be helpful to uh, many different organ systems, and this is, this is looking at uh, the effect on the myocardium. So we have superoxide dismutase measured in um, animals um, that are sham, get sham surgery, animals that get sequel ligation, and animals uh, at, at 24 hours and sequel ligation at 48 hours. Um, superoxide, as you, SOD is superoxide dismutase, which you probably know. And what that does is it um, gets rid of superoxide, converts it to hydrogen peroxide and oxygen. Um, and so what they found was that um, in animals that um, got sequel ligation and puncture, um, presumably due to um, a lot of um, uh, superoxide production um, and consumption of superoxide dismutase, they found the animals had, when they looked at their echoes, these are mice, I believe, again, um, they had decrease in the longitudinal strain and the circumferential strain. So in both of those things in a regression analysis predicted death. So the thought is that vitamin C could potentially mitigate these by acting as an antioxidant. Um, this is looking at vascular integrity itself. Um, so we got a sense of that from looking at the, um, uh, the lung injury study. Um, but here they have endothelial cells uh, in a monolayer um, exposed to vitamin C and DHA. Um, and this first um, panel here is looking at permeability and in the setting of uh, uh, LPS and interferon gamma versus control. So gray bars in control, black bars, LPS, interferon gamma. So these animals, uh, when they get LPS, they have lots of permeability. And that is suppressed and close to control when you have, when you've treated them with vitamin C or bathed them in vitamin C or DHA. The mechanism there is, is sort of laid out here. So LPS interferon gamma um, stimulates NADPH oxidase, creates superoxide peroxynitrates or reactive oxygen species, which activates this um, phosphatase. Um, protein phosphatase 2A. I realize this is 
a lot of things that are being strung together, that dephosphorylates occludin, and occludin is important in tight junctions. So um, if you disrupt the occludin, you end up with endothelial barrier dysfunction, and the thought is that ascorbate in its, using, in its antioxidant capacity will suppress each of these three, three reactions and improve vascular integrity. So this is a similar kind of study, except it's looking at, it's again, it's a monolayer of cells, and they're measuring uh, electrical resistance across the monolayer, so transendothelial electrical resistance. Um, higher is more resistance, which would suggest that the endothelium is intact. Lower would be less resistance. Endothelium is leaky. So if they expose the monolayer just to a vehicle or a, a benign uh, solution, you can see that the, the resistance doesn't change very much. Um, the same is true if you just expose it to vitamin C, it doesn't change very much. When you expose it to LPS, you have a big reduction in the resistance of the endothelium, so it seems like it's leaky. Um, and when you do uh, LPS and vitamin C, the same thing happens. They do the same thing, so it's a, the next panel is going to be the same slides, vehicle LPS, except they switch out um, vitamin C for hydrocortisone. So again, the, the inert vehicle, um, I guess is this one. Uh, this is hydrocortisone, looks like it has its own uh, effect on increasing the integrity of the, of the membrane. LPS, a big drop, and then LPS and hydrocortisone, you have maybe a little bit of a rise here. The reason this is uh, interesting is because one of, the, one of Dr. Merrick's rationales for including hydrocortisone and ascorbic acid in the cocktail is that they have a synergistic effect um, and uh, in, in, in a few different ways. This is one of them. So in this case, it's the same uh, model, um, but here you have in this uh, last, the triangles in blue, I'm not sure what color it shows up for you, but um, this arrow here is injection of LPS, and in animals that get a combination of hydrocortisone, vitamin C, and LPS, although it decreases the resistance, it actually rebounds quite nicely. So there's some synergy there that um, <coughs> uh, may have important effects in terms of how leaky the vessels are. Um, and this is a higher level view of, of other mechanisms of synergy, but um, the, uh, the receptor for glucocorticoids, um, if it is oxidized, it doesn't work as well. So if you, if you expose it to vitamin C, you get rid of that, you have better migration of corticosteroids into the cell or movement transport. Um, on the other side over here, corticosteroids actually help vitamin C get into the cell as well. And uh, a lot of its important actions are inside the cell, so that's, that's important. So there's, there's sort of three ways that <clears throat> there may be uh, synergy, but each molecule allowing the other to get in, intracellular and have its uh, anticipated downstream effects, and then at the endothelium itself, which is the previous study I showed you, improving endothelial integrity. Um, other things to know about vitamin C. It improves white cell function, improves chemotaxis, phagocytosis, and oc oxidative killing, um, stimulates lymphocyte proliferation. 
Um, just a couple of comments about thiamine. So thiamine is in the, in the protocol uh, for two reasons. One is um, Danino's study a couple years ago now um, showed it was a randomized controlled trial of about 80 patients. Um, and they measured baseline thiamine levels. And they randomized to thiamine repletion versus placebo. There is no difference in mortality overall. Uh, and I think their primary endpoint was actually lactate clearance. Thiamine, as you guys remember from the Krebs cycle, helps clear, clear uh, lactate. Um, if they limited the analysis or did a sub-analysis to uh, patients that were deficient in thiamine on arrival, those patients cleared lactate more quickly and they had a trend towards improved survival. Um, so thiamine is uh, potentially in and of itself uh, a valuable thing in sepsis. And then the other thing that it does is it uh, reroutes the metabolism of vitamin C, um, which typically would pass to, from vitamin C to glyoxylic acid to oxalate acid, and then give you the concerns about oxalate nephropathy. In the, in the presence of high concentrations of thiamine, that gets rerouted to carbon dioxide. So we may mitigate some of those potential adverse effects. When I, when I looked into this issue to see how big of an issue it was, uh, working on the IRB protocol, you know, the people who are getting oxalate nephropathy are people who are taking you know, several tablets a day over the courses of months. It's not people who are getting exposed to just a couple of days. Um, <clears throat> this is a study which really just looks at uh, vitamin C concentration and the first panel looking at mortality and the other panel looking at organ failure, which is really kidney injury in this case. I, I kind of think this is a bit of a funny slide, but um, you know, there's certainly people um, with low vitamin C who live, right? Um, but it, it doesn't look like people with high vitamin C die. This is, this is sort of empty up here. And the same is true over here in terms of kidney dysfunction. So you know, if you have low vitamin C, you might do okay, but you seem to have a greater risk of having kidney dysfunction. People who have high vitamin C, are, there's just nobody showing up on this end of the, end of the curve. All right, so I'm going to show just a couple of clinical studies. Um, this is a uh, older study now, 2002. It's a randomized controlled trial of almost 600 patients. Most of these patients are uh, trauma patients. Um, and they got standard of care versus uh, alpha-tocopherol and uh, vitamin C. Their primary outcome was a composite of ARDS, progressing to ARDS in pneumonia. And then they had these secondary outcomes, multisystem organ failure. Uh, length of mechanical ventilation, ICU length of stay, and mortality. Um, so on the primary outcome for ARDS, this did not reach statistical significance, but these curves do separate. So this is the intervention group, the group that got the antioxidants. So not statistically significant. It's a relative risk of 0.81, but it crosses, almost crosses unity. Um, I think it does. I think that's supposed to be 1.1. Looking at multi-system organ failure, there's a clear difference. Um, so the relative risk of that is 0.43 with a confidence interval um, that's all below 1. They had fewer days on mechanical ventilation and shorter ICU lengths of stay.
This I thought was, uh, this kind of got my attention. I, I don't work in the burn unit, um, but the burn guys, I guess, have been using high dose intravenous vitamin C for a long time. Um, and they're giving it at much higher doses than we're planning on giving it. But this was a, a small study, um, almost 40 patients had to have at least 30% burn within, and get them within two hours of the injury. And then they were given lactator ringers to maintain a urine output of 0.5 to 1 cc's per kilogram per hour. The intervention group got 60 milligrams per kilogram uh, per hour for 24 hours as a continuous infusion. So that's grams and grams per day. Um, I think it's something like four and a half grams or so per hour. Um, and then, and then the, the control group, they really didn't have a placebo group and this was not a, it was, this was not a blinded study. If you look at their 24-hour um, IV fluid resuscitation requirement, the control group got five and a half cc's per kilogram compared to three cc's per kilogram. That was very significant. Their urine output was not too different. Their weight um, went up quite a bit more. So uh, it's a percent increase over 24 hours of almost well, 18 to 20% versus 10%. Um, weight change in 72 hours continued to go up a bit. This group, it actually went down. That was different. And then the intervention group had fewer days of mechanical ventilation. There are a number of ongoing studies and a few that have been completed. There's been five, there's 15 registered at clinicaltrial.gov. Five have been completed. Um, and they're just, they're just studies that compared vitamin C to placebo. The only one that I can see as published results is Barry Fowler um, from VCU, and that was back in 2014. This was a phase one study, uh, 24 patients, and they had three groups. They had a group that got nothing. They had a group that got 50 milligrams per kilogram per day of vitamin C, and one that got 200 milligrams per kilogram per day. It's sort of a, a pharmacokinetic study, but they did look at SOFA scores, and the, the patients that got vitamin C, they had a significant reduction in SOFA scores over time compared to the group that got no vitamin C. Did not find any safety concerns. I'll point out though that they, they did not, um, they sent their glucose measurements to a central lab. They didn't have any, uh, they use a glucometer that is uh, problematic with vitamin C. What do, you, what do you guys have? You have an AccuCheck, right? Yeah. People are interested, I can talk a little bit more about that. But the, the short story is that high concentrations of vitamin C um, with many point of care glucometers will give you a falsely high reading. So you could theoretically miss hypoglycemia or you could cause hypoglycemia by giving insulin inappropriately. Um, and they, they have had that issue at uh, VCU. So they, when they did this study, just as a safety issue, they both in this study and in the citrus study that I was telling you about, they sent all their labs to the core lab. There's one glucometer that, that is uh, immune, if you will, to this. And um, I, don't, I don't know if you guys are using it. Are you guys gonna get one? Yeah, so the, the Nova stat strip um, is actually the only glucometer that's been approved for use in critical care in general, which I think is a surprise to people. Um, and that one uh, tolerates a very high serum concentration of vitamin C before it, it gives you erroneous errors, erroneous values, excuse me. Um, so in terms of those that are ongoing or about to start, um, it's, it's a range of scenarios that they're looking at. So two are just looking at vitamin C versus placebo. 
One looks at vitamin C and thiamine versus placebo. That, I think, is uh, the Danino group up in uh, Beth Israel Deaconess. One looks at vitamin C and hydrocortisone versus placebo. One's looking at the three-drug cocktail versus hydrocortisone alone. Um, four are looking at the three-drug cocktail versus placebo. Um, and then our study uh, is the three-drug cocktail um, versus placebo with the allowance for hydrocortisone or steroids if, if you feel it's important, which I mentioned before. So it'll be interesting to see how these things shake out. Um, uh, one, one thing is that our study is the biggest at 500. There's one other one that's 400, but that's, the rest of them are sort of around 40 to 50. So uh, one of the hopes that we have is if we, if we can't enroll past 500, hopefully we can do a, a combined data analysis, getting the, the data from all the studies. But they do have slightly different methodology. Um, so now I'm going to jump back to the Victus studies. There's a little bit of uh, nuts and bolts of our study. So if you're randomized to our study, you get three drugs. And these are things that may be worth knowing about if you're asked about it on the wards uh, or the unit, rather. Um, so when we name the study, you know, everybody's thinking vitamin C. So vitamin C turned out to be drug one, thiamine drug two, and hydrocortisone is drug three. When we planned what was going to happen at the bedside, uh, one of the nurses pointed out that it's going to be a pain to hang a bag of vitamin C, come back 30 minutes later, and then do two push pushes of drug. Be much more efficient for the nurse at the bedside to do two pushes, uh, a, a syringe of, of, of thiamine, a syringe of hydrocortisone, and then hang the mini bag, and then they're kind of done with what they have to do. So, so we start with drug two, then give drug three, and then uh, give drug one. So it's a little bit awkward. Um, I mentioned um, that there's an allowance for uh, giving steroids. So the way we're going to deal with that is if there are no steroids ordered by the clinical team, and the research team will check in on this once or twice a day, then study drug three, which may or may not have hydrocortisone, will be sent to the, to the bedside. Um, if the patient's on less than 200 milligrams a day of hydrocortisone or equivalent, um, then you'd send drug three to the bedside. But if they're on more than 200 milligrams a day, drug three would not be sent to the bed bedside. So it's a little, it's a little complicated, and uh, you all probably won't be involved in having to deal with this. But I guess what you should know is if you patients on protocol, if you want to give them steroids, that's fine. That's not, a, uh, that's not in conflict with our protocol. Um, once a patient's randomized, uh, first dose should be given as soon as possible, but um, we, we'd like it to be given within the first four hours. Um, subsequent doses uh, should convert to the ICU's Q6 hour regimen, and that's again for convenience for the nursing staff. Um, the window of time where it's acceptable to give it is uh, plus minus two hours of the scheduled time, and in terms of missed doses, we give people a, an additional hour, so out to three hours after the scheduled time is allowed. Um, the last drug will, uh, administration will be after dose 16 or ICU discharge, whichever occurs first, and there's a couple of examples here. So the patient remaining in the ICU for 96 hours after randomization, that patient gets all 16 doses. A patient that physically leaves the ICU at 48 hours, they stop uh, drugs and departure from the ICUs. So they'd only get about eight, eight doses. Uh, a patient transferred off the ICU team at 48 hours, so some ICUs, you, you, you leave the ICU team, but you stay in the ICU. 
um, those people would continue to get drug until they physically leave the unit. So they might, might get all 16. If, if you guys have the troubles we have getting people out of the ICU, they'll probably get all 16. And then you might have a patient that you enroll in the ED, but, but between the time they get, a bed, uh, they get enrolled and they get, into the, get a bed in the hospital, they, they no longer need an ICU bed and they get rerouted. So then they would stop therapy or the intervention um, as they leave the ED. Um, so an update on Victus. Uh, the first site was activated yesterday, Emory University. Um, they, they're shipping us drug today, and then there's some uh, training. I don't know if you've tried to do the training, but it's, it's been a little bit of a, uh, it's, there's some improvements being made to the REDCap system. It's a little awkward right now, but um, we're hoping to get started tomorrow or uh, early next week. There are 41 centers that uh, are, are engaged to be in the study. Um, some centers have a couple of sites, so 46 sites overall, hoping that each site will uh, target 20 patients per year and that that would comfortably get us to 500 by August 31st of 2019. So it's a pretty tight timeline, um, but we're hopeful we can get that done. Uh, the, guy, the, the group that's funding this wants the, wants the paper by December 31st of 19. So he, he, he signed a contract with Emory University as opposed to providing a grant. So there's a contract with deliverables. I don't exactly know what uh, happens if we don't meet a target. Our first target was to enroll a patient before July 31st, which we did not do. So uh, the sky has not fallen yet, but it's, uh, uh, when I've asked the question, I've not gotten an answer that uh, suggested the person I was asking was happy to be asked. Um, I think we can skip this. Um, how are we doing on time? That's probably good. Yeah. All right. Well, if you have questions, please let me know. Yeah. No, you need to be on for continuous. Um, and the way we've, uh, so it's a good question because, and not one that was in the original protocol because you know, you know, the more times you read it, the more questions you have. But so what we didn't want to have happen is people meet criteria, come off pressers, and then meet criteria again, and that could go on for a long time. So it's 24 hours from the first time you meet criteria. You've got that window, and they have to meet criteria at the time of randomization. So if you have somebody who met criteria um, because of vasopressors after a liter of fluid, and they're still on that, and then they come off, um, but they go back on, um, within the first 24 hours, if you go to randomize them and they're on vasopressors at that time, that would count. Okay, but if they came off and then you got to 26 hours and they got hypotensive again, that person's out. Now, if they leave the ICU, the way we've decided to deal with this, because there are different episodes of sepsis, we get that. We also get that there are liver failure patients who are on and off every day. So if you are well enough to leave the ICU off vasopressors and come back with a new episode of sepsis, you would be okay to re-enroll that person. Or, I'm sorry, to try and enroll that person. Can only be enrolled once. Yeah. 
Thank you, Steve. Thank you, guys. Drugs, you could have like a three, two, one blast off. Yeah. Uh, 